Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. We have another author that we're going to be interviewing today, and this time it's Dr. Mary Graybar talking about her book, Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. Now, many of you will have heard of the 1619 Project, and she's going to get into the details of, of what exactly the 1619 Project is and why it's so dangerous. But just to give you a bit of background on her, she's also the author of Debunking Howard Zinn, and she earned her PhD from the University of Georgia and taught college English for two decades. She's now a resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization in Clinton, New York, and her writing can be found at dissidentprof.com and at marygraybar.com. That's G-R-A-B-A-R. It's a really interesting discussion. I love having historians on the show to kind of give us context for the things we see unfolding in the news. The 1619 Project has been particularly relevant after the Black Lives Matter riots, over the battle in schools, over critical race theory. And because this is such an important subject, I really did want to have her on. So debunking the 1619 Project is the book, and this is my conversation with the author. My first question for those listeners who haven't been following this debate, and, and most of the people listening are going to know what this is all about, but there are going to be some that don't. So what is the 1619 Project? It was a special issue of the New York Times Magazine, about 100 pages long, that was released on August 18th, 2019, to mark the 400th anniversary of the first arrival of Africans in the colonies at Jamestown. Uh, they didn't know exactly what the date was, how many were brought over, and what their status was after they arrived. But nonetheless, it uh, was seen as a historical uh, marker, uh, a date of significance, and it is something that has been developed into a curriculum immediately. 3,500 schools got the ready-made quizlets and reading guides and so forth. And so it was that semester put into the schools beginning K through 12. So that's what it is. It's a, it's a rewriting of American history. And the authors or the creator's thesis, Nicole Hannah-Jones's thesis, is that the, this nation was not founded in 1776, but in 1619, uh, the year when the first Africans arrived and which she claims was the beginning of slavery here. How does something go from being a New York Times story to curriculum across the country in such a short amount of time? Well, it was all planned out. I mean, they had a deal with the Pulitzer Center, which is a nonprofit that's funded uh, by the Pierre Omidyar Network. He's a billionaire, and he funds a lot of the Democratic candidates, uh, you know, all the left-wing causes, and Zuckerberg. And they had this all planned out. The lessons were ready to go. There was a lot of fanfare. There was a lot of publicity. And uh, there were other newspapers and magazines that also had articles marking this date, but none of them got the attention that the 1619 Project got. So it was definitely a marketing phenomenon, and it, it was no accident that it grabbed the public's attention. And one of the primary reasons is that it was immediately put into the schools. Well, that's really what, I, what I'm wondering, though, is, is how did it get 
into the schools because so I remember when the 1619 project came out I'm a, I'm a big uh, fan of history and one of my friends who got it who's a subscriber of the New York Times actually phoned me and said you need to read this it's actually just super interesting and then next thing I knew I'm hearing about 1619 as the new beginning of the American Republic and it's going to end up in school. So how did we get from a newspaper article written by some academics? Sure. Very long, sure. But like, how do you get all these school boards accepting it? How do you get it reshaping curriculum? It's just, it seems so fast for it to go from the project of a few academics writing for a major newspaper to children in schools being taught this as an alternative version of history. Actually, the majority of the writers are either journalists like the creator, Nicole Hannah-Jones, or are creative writers or film producers or something. So it's not really written by historians. There's only, there's less than a handful. And these are historians who are also activists and have a very sort of narrow view of history. So it's not legitimate history. There are two reasons why it got into the schools. Number one is that there has been this decline in the quality of textbooks, you know, coming on for decades. And so a lot of the textbooks that you look at, and I looked at a couple closely in my book, Debunking the 1619 Project, already present a distorted view of the founders and of our founding. And the second thing is, is that, This was sent as, quote, supplementary material. So it's not an official textbook. It was downloadable. It was sent to teachers. They must have had the list on hand. And teachers who themselves have been indoctrinated in colleges of education were very eager to use this. It's along the lines of the materials that are put out by the Zen Education Project and other far-left organizations. And so they see themselves as molding students into activists for causes, for social justice causes. And so they were able to adopt this as supplementary material. And it's very engaging to a lot of students because it, it captures their emotions. There is a lot of hyperbole about suffering. And so teachers can get their students to talk about this. And so they were eager to accept this and use it in the classrooms. Let's backtrack a little bit. When we're looking at the 1619 Project, especially debunking it, which is is the subject of your book, we have a general idea of what the 1619 Project is, is all about. But how would you explain it to people in terms of why was a hundred pages on on sixty nineteen published by the New York Times? Why did it have so much emotional power as you just described, and why is it so dangerous? Well, it has emotional power because of the language, even the introductory material, as I explain in my book debunking the sixteen nineteen project, uh, has kind of a trigger warning <laughs> saying, you know what you're going to read is going to be disturbing you know, the way that slaves were treated. And then it goes ahead and does so, but it leaves out enormous amounts of information, accurate information about, you know, what was going on in the world. And so it presents the situation in the United States as isolated. One would get the impression if one did not know about 
history you know, of the world at the time and only read the 1619 Project, one will get the impression that slavery only existed in the United States, that nowhere else in the world was such cruelty shown to a group of people. But when you put it into the context of what was going on, you see, well, that was basically the normal course of events in the 17th and the 18th centuries. They're the only place on earth where you didn't have slavery was Antarctica and Western Europe. But the the Western uh, European nations, of course, had colonies with slaves. So that is how it conveys this emotional sort of feeling. And of course, according to our standards today in 2021 or 2019 or, you know, the 20th century, it's, it's appalling to think that people could be enchained and whipped and forced to do work. But that was pretty much uh, accepted at the time. And so that's how it, you know, it conveys this. And of course, you know, you increasingly get graduates who have no sense of a perspective from a world historical point of view. And so they increasingly see this as a, as it's called in the, 1619 Project, The Original Sin of America. Now, that's interesting because I always understood growing up that that slavery was the original sin of America and it was expunged by 600,000 people who died in the American Civil War to rid America of slavery and to bring about a better union, as Lincoln said. How would you frame what the intent of, uh, of the architects of the 1619 Project were? The intent is the same intent that the communists used when they established the beginnings of the communist party in New York City in uh, you know 1919 and that was to divide this country they saw the weak point in terms of race relations with the KKK and segregation and so forth so the, so they have practiced this throughout history everywhere in the world, which is the divide and conquer strategy. And I might also point out, as I do in uh, debunking the 1619 Project, that this concept of original sin is, you know, of course, slavery is not the original sin. It was not considered a sin. It's not considered a sin in the Bible, but it was the phrase used by a congressman by the name of Talmadge during the Missouri debates, and he did not say that it was the original sin of America, but of England. So that has been twisted around um, and presented as, you know, something, you know, as I said before, unique to this country when, in fact, it was, you know, the opposite. It was something that was pretty standard at the time. Now, when we're talking about the the history of the U.S. and sort of grappling with what's going on, how do we, like, uh, from a conservative perspective, from my perspective, that, like, looking at history with, with open eyes is a conservative thing to do. It's recognizing what actually happened. It's looking at real history. And yet today we seem to be in this scenario where we're talking about difficult parts of history, talking as as you just have been 
about the fact that there were different standards has now led people to say it's not just that our countries have done bad things. It's that our country can no do no good things. And so how do we grapple with the history of slavery without falling into the trap of the 1619 Project? Well, I would say that we need to look at world history and don't look at the United States in isolation. So we need to be, you know, multicultural in that sense. We need to see what was going on. You know, the 1619 Project claims that, you know, Britain was trying to outlaw slavery and, you know, the opposite was the case. You need to look at well, how did these people become slaves in the first place? How did they get from Africa to America? Well, it's not as, you know, the lead essay of the 1619 Project implies that Europeans went inland in Africa and kidnapped these Africans. In fact, it was rival leaders who invaded villages captured the slaves, led them in shackles to the coast where they put them in barracoons, these holding pens. Many of them died in the journey or in the barracoons. They were certainly compromised in their health by their treatment. And then they were sold by middlemen who were Africans or Muslims to the Europeans waiting on the shore. So without the cooperation of the Africans, this would never have happened. And of course, slavery was accepted throughout Africa and all the continents. And, you know, you go to Africa during this time and there are slaves working on plantations there. So if you, you know, wonder, as Nicole Hannah-Jones points out, how the slaves knew how to grow rice and teach it to, you know, the Americans. Well, there were rice plantations in Africa. So I, so you need to look at it in that perspective. And I think that is the biggest error that's made is to present American history in isolation. So if if you had to explain to prospective readers what the basic thesis uh, of your book and what you cover in debunking the 1619 Project is, how would you go about that? My thesis is that the premise of the 1619 Project, that which is that this country was founded in 1619 as a slaveocracy, which means that it was, you know, built on the backs of slaves in terms of wealth and power is wrong, that in fact, the founding of this country is in 1776, when we declared independence and set up a Republican form of government. So the whole premise of the 1619 project is something that I point by point uh, refute through historical examples, through the research I've done into history, and I point out the gaps, and I point out the misrepresentations, 
and things that just simply are not mentioned, but that are essential for a good historical understanding. So I understand how, like, in discussing slavery and discussing the history of slavery, that 1619 would be an important date. What I've never been quite clear on is how you could possibly establish this as, as an alternative beginning to American history, even if you accept the premise, which I don't, that, that slavery was sort of integral to, to the American founding. How can you sort of revise history in retrospect and say 1776, despite the Declaration of Independence, etc., is not America's founding in 1619? How do they make that case? They make the case, as Marxists have done, that, <laughs> you know, that they look at, they present the situation in the United States today as still suffering the legacy of slavery. So according to Nicole Hannah-Jones and the other contributors to this project, and there are dozens of them, including poets and so forth, is that because we have disparities in income or educational level and crime and so forth, that this all goes back to the legacy of slavery. And uh, so in order to explain, you know, what are the dysfunctions and the inequities of our country today, they go back and say, aha, this is where it all began. Things have not really changed. But, you know, but when you do that, you sort of have to skip over <laughs> decades and maybe even centuries of history when, you know, African-Americans, you know, had higher rates of marriage and uh, lower rates of out-of-wedlock children and lower rates of crime and so forth. And so this new history is presented to support, you know, this, you know, critical race theory, which is a theory that states that our inequities, not inequalities, but inequities are due to racism. A lot of our listeners will have heard about the debate surrounding critical race theory. We had Christopher Rufo on the podcast like last year to talk about some of the stuff. Um, to what extent is the 1619 Project pioneered by the New York Times? To what extent does that bring us to now when we're having this debate about critical race theory? That's a great question. The 1619 Project, it's one of the most twisted versions of history. It's foundational to critical race theory. Critical race theory really doesn't hold up unless you have this twisted, perverted view of American history. If you are exposed to the complexities and to the realities of history, then critical race theory falls apart. And so that's what the per one of the purposes of my book, Debunking the 1619 Project, is to provide a tool for those who are fighting this pernicious theory called critical race theory that presents the world as sort of this 
battle between oppressors and oppressed, which is being taught to second graders, you know. Here's the most interesting thing is a lot of people will say, you know, debugging the 1619 project is something conservatives are doing because they want to avoid tough discussions. How would you respond to that argument? Well, if you're going to talk about tough discussions, let's talk about, you know, slavery in Africa. And if you want to talk about reparations, let's talk about getting reparations from the merchants in Africa who profited from selling slaves. Let's talk about the black slave owners. A third of the free blacks, a third as many in terms of percentage of the free blacks in the South owned slaves as did whites. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Brown Fellowship Society, which was an elite group of men, of mixed race men, who defended slavery even into the Civil War, where they trained with militias. And let's talk about a case that I point out, the state, the Edmund, where a an escaped slave was harboring another one and was being sued by the black owner. So if you're talking about an original sin or something that you consider to be a sin, if you consider slavery to be a sin, well, it was practiced by people of all races. So I, I do, of course, consider slavery to be a sin. And would what, what would you say to somebody who said, okay, but that argument doesn't actually debunk the idea that America had to grapple with this, right? Because it, it can be true that, that the sin was practiced by people of all races, which it was. It can also be true that it was a race-based system, which it also was. How would you respond to that? Well, it was a race-based system in that whites could not be enslaved. But what do you mean by grappling with it? We lost three quarters of a million men in a civil war to grapple with it. White abolitionists died in terms of fighting for the uh, freedom of the enslaved. What else is there to grapple with? I don't, I really don't see anything that needs to be grappled with. And that's sort of an emotional argument that's made. It's intended to induce guilt and I don't feel we should have any guilt over that. It, it, it has been dealt with. Uh, we had the civil rights movement. There are laws that have been passed that have given the advantage to people who descended from slaves. So there is nothing to, gr to really grapple with in an emotional sense. I think the full history needs to be exposed which is what I do in uh, debunking the 1619 Project. I suppose by grapple with it, I, I, I mean Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, which I find that too few people are familiar with, where he grapples with, with slavery and the Civil War as a theological issue and tries to understand it from both a historical and a biblical perspective. Yeah, and he, that was a speech and where he tried to bring the country together and as he said, you know, if it's, if it's God's will, right, that, you know, slavery was imposed, this was something that has been a fact of life since the beginning of history. And if it was God's will that a war be fought over it, 
it, you know, it happened. And so that was his way to bring the country together to not put all the blame on the South and to have a conciliation and to put the past behind us. And, you know, that should be the attitude that we have today. And you kind of wonder, you know, 150 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, why, why keep going back? Why keep going back? Why, you know, present what happened in this very distorted way? Well, there are political goals, and the creator of this project has argued for reparations, and she has a Marxist outlook. She is very ignorant of history, but she's very embittered, and she's an admirer of Fidel Castro. And so in order to rile up a nation, to pit people against each other, you keep bringing up the past and you do it in a very distorted way. What do you think is dangerous about the 1619 Project for the United States? We saw it last summer, didn't we? When people were stopped in the streets by mobs of angry young people who've been indoctrinated, when you couldn't go through an intersection in your car where you were mobbed by angry young people in a restaurant, where statues were being toppled, where buildings were being destroyed, where approximately 30 people were killed. And someone had called that the 1619 riots. The creator, Nicole Hannah-Jones, proudly took credit for inspiring that. She said she was proud to have inspired those riots. So I ask you, you know, do you like violence in the streets? Do you like lawlessness? Do you like Black people and white people looking at each other with accusatory eyes, even down to little children in classrooms? You know, you know, as a mother of an adult son, I know when children are young, they don't see color. They may notice it, you know, as a physical characteristic, but they become friends based on mutual uh, interests, you know, they kind but but they have to be taught to hate each other because of their race. And that's exactly what critical race theory and the 1619 Project, which is adapted for grades as low as the second grade, that's what it's intended to do. It's intended to inspire hatred and suspicion, even in young children. The final question would be, what can people do about the 1619 Project in schools? Like uh, Christopher Rufo has been doing a lot of activism against critical race theory. What would you advocate that people do to get involved? My book, Debunking the 1619 Project, is intended to be a tool to provide the resources for people who want to be able to refute what is being said in the 1619 Project. One of the arguments that the defenders of the 1619 Project make is that 
well, these parents aren't experts. We're the educators. We know best. We've got the education degrees. We, you know, we may be historians, but these people don't know what they're talking about. So I wrote my book in order to provide a weapon for parents in order to point by point refute what's being told in the 1619 project. I've got hundreds of footnotes, reputable sources. I've done an incredible amount of research. I, it's been reviewed by historians here at the Alexander Hamilton Institute where I am. So I'm hoping that I can do my part with this book to help parents, school board members, concerned citizens who you know, don't want to be mobbed, I, to help them to refute these people who think that they are the experts or claim to be. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this with us. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Mary Graber on her book, Debunking the 1619 Project. Thank you so much for joining us this week to listen to the show. We had authors on uh, last week. We hope to have another author on next week discussing current issues, taking a deep dive into what's going on in the culture. Thank you so much for joining us, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.